Chapter Nine, Part Four of Five of Herndon's Lincoln. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Week. Section 15. I cannot close this article lengthy as it is without testifying to the honorable and gentlemanly conduct of General Ewing and Dr. Hope nor indeed can i say that i saw anything objectionable in the course of general whiteside up to the time of his communication this is so replete with prevarication and misrepresentation that i cannot accord to the general that candor which i once supposed him to possess he complains that i did not procrastinate time according to agreement he forgets that by his own act he cut me off from that chance in inducing me by promise not to communicate our secret contract to mr lincoln moreover i could see no consistency in wishing for an extension of time at that stage of the affair when in the outset they were in so precipitate a hurry that they could not wait three days for mr lincoln to return from tremont but must hasten there apparently with the intention of bringing the matter to a speedy issue he complains too that after inviting him to take a seat in the buggy i never broached the subject to him on our route here but was i the defendant in the case with a challenge hanging over me to make advances and beg a reconciliation absurd moreover the valorous general forgets that he beguiled the tedium of the journey by recounting to me his exploits in many a well-fought battle dangers by flood and field in which i don't believe he ever participated doubtless with a view to produce a salutary effect on my nerves and impress me with the proper notion of his fire-eating propensities one more main point of his argument and i have done the general seems to be troubled with a convenient shortness of memory on some occasions he does not remember that any explanations were offered at any time unless it were a paper read when the broadsword proposition was tendered when his mind was so confused by the anticipated clatter of broadswords or something else that he did not know fully what it purported to be the truth is that by unwisely refraining from mentioning it to his principal he placed himself in a dilemma which he is now endeavouring to shovel out of by his inefficiency and want of knowledge of those laws which govern gentlemen in matters of this kind he has done great injustice to his principal a gentleman who i believe is ready at all times to vindicate his honour manfully but who has been unfortunate in the selection of his friends and this fault he is now trying to wipe out by doing an act of still greater injustice to mr lincoln e h merriman footnote the following letter from lincoln to his friend speed furnishes the final outcome of the dueling business springfield october fifth eighteen forty two dear speed you have heard of my duel with shields and i have now to inform you that the dueling business still rages in the city day before yesterday shields challenged butler who accepted 
proposed fighting next morning at sunrising in bob allen's meadow one hundred yards distance with rifles to this white side shields the second said no because of the law thus ended duel number two yesterday whiteside chose to consider himself insulted by dr merriman so sent him a kind of quasi challenge inviting him to meet him at the planter's house in st louis on the next friday to settle their difficulty merriman made me his friend and sent whiteside a note inquiring to know if he meant his note as a challenge and if so that he would according to the law in such case made and provided prescribe the terms of the meeting whiteside returned for answer that if merriman would meet him at the planter's house as desired he would challenge him merriman replied in a note that he denied whiteside's right to dictate time and place but that he merriman would waive the question of time and meet him at louisiana missouri upon my presenting this note to whiteside and stating verbally its contents he declined receiving it saying he had business in st louis and it was as near as louisiana merriman then directed me to notify whiteside that he should publish the correspondence between them with such comments as he saw fit this i did thus it stood at bedtime last night this morning whiteside by his friend shields is praying for a new trial on the ground that he was mistaken in merriman's proposition to meet him at louisiana missouri thinking it was the state of louisiana this merriman hoots at and is preparing his publication while the town is in a ferment and a street fight somewhat anticipated yours forever lincoln End of footnote dr merriman's elaborate and graphic account of the meeting at the dueling ground and all the preliminary proceedings is as full and complete a history of this serio-comic affair as any historian could give mr lincoln as mentioned in the outset of this chapter in the law office and elsewhere as a rule refrained from discussing it i only remember of hearing him say this in reference to the duel i did not intend to hurt shields unless i did so clearly in self-defence if it had been necessary i could have split him from the crown of his head to the end of his backbone and when one takes into consideration the conditions of weapons and position required in his instructions to dr merriman the boast does not seem impossible the marriage of lincoln in no way diminished his love for politics in fact as we shall see later along it served to stimulate his zeal in that direction he embraced every opportunity that offered for a speech in public early in eighteen forty two he entered into the washingtonian movement organized to suppress the evils of intemperance at the request of the society he delivered an admirable address on washington's birthday in the presbyterian church which in keeping with former efforts has been so often published that i need not quote it in full i was then an ardent temperance reformer myself and remember well 
how one paragraph of lincoln's speech offended the church members who were present speaking of certain christians who objected to the association of drunkards even with the chance of reforming them he said if they the christians believe as they profess that omnipotence condescended to take on himself the form of sinful man and as such die an ignominious death surely they will not refuse submission to the infinitely lesser condescension for the temporal and perhaps eternal salvation of a large erring and unfortunate class of their fellow-creatures nor is the condescension very great in my judgment such of us as have never fallen victims have been spared more from the absence of appetite than from any mental or moral superiority over those who have indeed i believe if we take habitual drunkards as a class their heads and their hearts will bear an advantageous comparison with those of any other class the avowal of these sentiments proved to be an unfortunate thing for lincoln the professing christians regarded the suspicion suggested in the first sentence as a reflection on the sincerity of their belief and that the last one had no better effect in reconciling them to his views i was at the door of the church as the people passed out and heard them discussing the speech many of them were open in the expression of their displeasure it's a shame i heard one man saying that he should be permitted to abuse us so in the house of the lord the truth was the society was composed mainly of the roughs and drunkards of the town who had evinced a desire to reform many of them were too fresh from the gutter to be taken at once into the society of such people as worshipped at the church where the speech was delivered neither was there that concert of effort so universal to-day between the churches and temperance societies to rescue the fallen the whole thing i repeat was damaging to lincoln and gave rise to the opposition on the part of the churches which confronted him several years afterwards when he became a candidate against the noted peter cartwright for congress the charge therefore that in matters of religion he was a skeptic was not without its supporters especially where his opponent was himself a preacher but nothing daunted lincoln kept on and labored zealously in the interest of the temperance movement he spoke often again in springfield and also in other places over the country displaying the same courage and adherence to principle that characterized his very undertaking meanwhile he had one eye open for politics as he moved along he was growing more self-reliant in the practice of law every day and felt amply able to take charge of and maintain himself in any case that happened to come into his hands his propensity for the narration of an apt story was of immeasurable aid to him before a jury and in cases where the law seemed to lean towards the other side won him many a case in eighteen forty two martin van buren who had just left the presidential chair made a journey through the west he was accompanied by his former secretary of the navy mr paulding and in june they reached the village of rochester distant from springfield six miles it was evening 
when they arrived and on account of the muddy roads they decided to go no farther but to rest there for the night word was sent into springfield and of course the leading democrats of the capital hurried out to meet the distinguished visitor knowing that accommodations at rochester were not intended for or suited to the entertainment of an ex-president they took with them refreshments in quantity and variety to make up for all deficiencies among others they prevailed on lincoln although an ardent and pronounced whig to accompany them they introduced him to the venerable statesman of kinderhook as a representative lawyer in a man whose wit was as ready as his store of anecdotes was exhaustless how he succeeded in entertaining the visitor and the company those who were present have often since testified van buren himself entertained the crowd with reminiscences of politics in new york going back to the days of hamilton and burr and many of the crowd in turn interested him with graphic descriptions of early life on the western frontier but they all yielded at last to the piquancy and force of lincoln's queer stories of these relates one of the company there was a constant supply one following another in rapid succession each more irresistible than its predecessor the fun continued until after midnight and until the distinguished traveller insisted that his sides were sore from laughing the yarns which lincoln gravely spun out van buren assured the crowd he would never forget after april fourteenth eighteen forty one when lincoln retired from the partnership with stuart who had gone to congress he had been associated with stephen t logan a man who had as he deserved the reputation of being the best nisi prius lawyer in the state judge logan was a very orderly but somewhat technical lawyer he had some fondness for politics and made one race for congress but he lacked the elements of a successful politician he was defeated and returned to the law he was assiduous in study and tireless in search of legal principles he was industrious and very thrifty delighted to make and save money and died a rich man lincoln had none of logan's qualities he was anything but studious and had no money sense he was five years younger and yet his mind and make-up so impressed logan that he was invited into the partnership with him logan's example had a good effect on lincoln and stimulated him to unusual endeavors for the first time he realized the effectiveness of order and method in work but his old habits eventually overcame him he permitted his partner to do all the studying in the preparation of cases while he himself trusted to his general knowledge of the law and the inspiration of the surroundings to overcome the judge or the jury logan was scrupulously exact and used extraordinary care in the preparation of papers his words were well chosen and his style of composition was stately and formal this extended even to his letters this lincoln lacked in every particular i have before me a letter written by lincoln at this time to the proprietors of a wholesale store in louisville for whom suit had been brought 
in which after notifying the latter of the sale of certain real estate in satisfaction of their judgment he adds as to the real estate we cannot attend to it we are not real estate agents we are lawyers we recommend that you give the charge of it to mr isaac s Britton, a trustworthy man and one whom the lord made on purpose for such business he gravely signs the firm name logan and lincoln to this unlawyer-like letter and sends it on its way logan never would have written such a letter he had too much gravity and austere dignity to permit any such looseness of expression in letters to clients or to any one else in eighteen forty three logan and lincoln both had their eyes set on the race for congress logan's claim to honor lay in his age and the services he had rendered the whig party while lincoln overflowing with ambition laid great stress on his legislative achievements and demanded it because he had been defeated in the nominating conventions by both hardin and baker in the order named that two such aspiring politicians each striving to obtain the same prize should not dwell harmoniously together in the same office is not strange indeed we may reasonably credit the story that they considered themselves rivals and that numerous sacrimonious passages took place between them i was not surprised therefore one morning to see mr lincoln come rushing up into my quarters and with more or less agitation tell me he had determined to sever the partnership with logan i confess i was surprised when he invited me to become his partner i was young in the practice and was painfully aware of my want of ability and experience but when he remarked in his earnest honest way billy i can trust you if you can trust me i felt relieved and accepted the generous proposal it has always been a matter of pride with me that during our long partnership continuing on until it was dissolved by the bullet of the assassin booth we never had any personal controversy or disagreement i never stood in his way for political honors or office and i believe we understood each other perfectly in after years when he became more prominent and our practice grew to respectable proportions other ambitious practitioners undertook to supplant me in the partnership one of the latter more zealous than wise charged that i was in a certain way weakening the influence of the firm i am flattered to know that lincoln turned on this last named individual with the retort i know my own business i reckon i know billy herndon better than anybody and even if what you say of him is true i intend to stick by him lincoln's effort to obtain the congressional nomination in eighteen forty three brought out several unique and amusing incidences he and edward d baker were the two aspirants from sangamon county but baker's long residence extensive acquaintance and general popularity were obstacles lincoln could not overcome accordingly at the last moment lincoln reluctantly withdrew from the field in a letter to his friend speed dated march twenty fourth eighteen forty three he describes the situation as follows we had a meeting 
of the Whigs of the county here on last Monday to appoint delegates to a district convention, and Baker beat me and got the delegation instructed to go for him. The meeting, in spite of my attempts to decline it, appointed me one of the delegates, so that in getting Baker the nomination, I shall be fixed a good deal like a fellow who is made groomsman to a man that has cut him out and is marrying his own dear gal. Only a few days before this he had written a friend about the congressional matter. Now, if you should hear any one say that Lincoln don't want to go to Congress, I wish you, as a personal friend of mine, would tell him you have reason to believe he is mistaken. The truth is, I would like to go very much. Still circumstances may happen which may prevent my being a candidate. If there are any who be my friends in such an enterprise, what I now want is that they shall not throw me away just yet. To another friend in the adjoining county of Menard, a few days after the meeting of the Whigs in Sangamon, he explains how Baker defeated him. The entire absence of any feeling of bitterness, or what the politicians call revenge, is the most striking feature of the letter. It is truly gratifying, he says to me, to learn that while the people of Sangamon have cast me off, my old friends of Menard, who have known me longest and best, stick to me. It would astonish me, if not amuse the older citizens, to learn that I, a strange, friendless, uneducated, penniless boy, working on a flat boat at ten dollars per month, have been put down here as the candidate of pride, wealth, and aristocratic family distinction. Yet so chiefly it was, there was too the strangest combination of church influence against me. Baker is a Campbellite, and therefore, as I suppose, with few exceptions, got all that church. My wife has some relations in the Presbyterian churches, and some with the Episcopalian churches, and therefore, wherever it would tell, I was set down as either the one or the other, while it was everywhere contended that no Christian ought to go for me, because I belonged to no church, was suspected of being a deist, and had talked about fighting a duel. With all these things, Baker, of course, had nothing to do, nor do I complain of them. As to his own church going for him, I think that was right enough, and as to the influences I have spoken of in the other, though they were very strong, it would be grossly untrue and unjust to charge that they acted upon them in a body, or were very near so. I only meant that those influences levied a tax of considerable percent, and throughout the religious controversy. To a proposition offering to instruct the Menard delegation, for him he replies, You say you shall instruct your delegates for me unless I object. I certainly shall not object. That would be too pleasant a compliment for me to tread in the dust. And besides, if anything should happen, which, however, is not probable, by which Baker should be thrown out of the fight, I would be at liberty to accept the nomination if I could get it. I do, however, 
feel myself bound not to hinder him in any way from getting the nomination. I should despise myself were I to attempt it. Baker's friends had used as an argument against Lincoln that he belonged to a proud and aristocratic family, referring doubtless to some of the distinguished relatives who were connected with him by marriage. The story reaching Lincoln's ears, he laughed heartily over it one day in a Springfield store and remarked, That sounds strange to me, for I do not remember of but one who ever came to see me, and while he was in town he was accused of stealing a Jew's harp. In the convention, which was held shortly after at the town of Pekin, neither Baker nor Lincoln obtained the coveted honor, but John J. Hardin of Morgan, destined to lose his life at the head of an Illinois regiment in the Mexican War, was nominated and in the following August elected by a good majority. Lincoln bore his defeat manfully. He was no doubt greatly disappointed, but by no means soured. He conceived the strange notion that the publicity given his so-called aristocratic family distinction would cost him the friendship of his humbler constituents, his Clary's Grove friends. He took his friend James Matheny out into the woods with him one day, and calling up the bitter features of the canvas, protested, vehemently and with great emphasis, that he was anything but aristocratic and proud. Why, Jim, he said, I am now and always shall be the same Abe Lincoln I was when you first saw me. In the campaign of 1844, Lincoln filled the honorable post of presidential elector and he extended the limits of his acquaintance by stumping the state. This was the year the gallant and magnetic clay went down in defeat. Lincoln, in the latter end of the canvas, crossed over into Indiana and made several speeches. He spoke at Rockport, and also at Gentryville, where he met the Grigsby's, the Gentries, and other friends of his boyhood. The result of the election was a severe disappointment to Mr. Lincoln, as well as to all other Whigs. No election since the foundation of the government created more widespread regret than the defeat of Clay by Polk. Men were never before so enlisted in any man's cause, and when the great Whig chieftain went down, his followers fled from the field in utter demoralization. Some doubted the success of popular government, while others, more hopeful, still in the face of the general disaster, vowed they would never shave their faces or cut their hair till Henry Clay became president. As late as 1880, I saw one man who had lived up to his insane resolution. One political society organized to aid Clay's election sent the defeated candidate an address in which they assured him that, after the smoke of battle had cleared away, he would ever be remembered as one whose name honored defeat and gave it a glory which victory could not have brought. In Lincoln's case, his disappointment was no greater than that of any other Whig. Many persons have yielded to the impression that Mr. Lincoln visited Clay at his home in Lexington and felt a personal loss in his defeat but such is not the case. He took no more gloomy view of the situation than the rest of the party, 
he had been a leading figure himself in other campaigns and was fully inured to the chilling blasts of defeat they may have driven him in but only for a short time for he soon evinced a willingness to test the temper of the winds again no sooner had baker been elected to congress in august eighteen forty four than lincoln began to manifest a longing for the tempting prize to be contended for in eighteen forty six hardin and baker both having been required to content themselves with a single term each the struggle among whig aspirants narrowed down to logan and lincoln footnote the whig candidates for congress in the springfield district rotated in the following order baker succeeded hardin in eighteen forty four lincoln was elected in eighteen forty six and logan was nominated but defeated in eighteen forty eight lincoln publicly declined to contest the nomination with baker in eighteen forty four hardin did the same for lincoln in eighteen forty six although both seemed to have acted reluctantly and lincoln refused to run against logan in eighteen forty eight many persons insist that an agreement among these four conspicuous whig leaders to content themselves with one term each actually existed there is however no proof of any bargain although there seems to have been a tacit understanding of the kind maintained probably to keep other and less tractable candidates out of the field End footnote. the latter's claim seemed to find such favorable lodgment with the party workers and his popularity seemed so apparent that logan soon realized his own want of strength and abandoned the field to his late law partner the convention which nominated lincoln met at petersburg may first eighteen forty six hardin who in violation of what was then regarded as precedent had been seeking the nomination had courteously withdrawn logan ambitious to secure the honor next time for himself with apparent generosity presented lincoln's name to the convention and there being no other candidate he was chosen unanimously the reader need not be told whom the democrats placed in the field against him it was peter cartwright the famous methodist divine and circuit writer an energetic canvass of three months followed during which lincoln kept his forces well in hand he was active and alert speaking everywhere and abandoning his share of business in the law office entirely he had a formidable competitor in cartwright who not only had an extensive following by reason of his church influence but rallied many more supporters around his standard by his pronounced jacksonian attitude he had come into illinois with the early immigrants from kentucky and tennessee and had at one time or another preached to almost every methodist congregation between springfield and cairo he had extensive family connections all over the district was almost twenty-five years older than lincoln and in every respect a dangerous antagonist another thing which operated much to lincoln's disadvantage was the report circulated by cartwright's friends with respect to lincoln's religious views he was charged with the grave offense of infidelity and sentiments which he was reported to have expressed with reference to the inspiration of the bible were given the campaign varnish 
and passed from hand to hand his sliding allusion expressed in the address of the presbyterian church before the washington temperance society february second four years before to the insecurity of the christian people was not forgotten it too played its part but all these opposing circumstances were of no avail cartwright was personally very popular but it was plain the people of the springfield district wanted no preacher to represent them in congress they believed in an absolute separation of church and state the election therefore of a man such as cartwright would not to their way of thinking tend to promote such a result i was enthusiastic and active in lincoln's interest myself the very thought of my associates becoming a member of congress was a great stimulus to my self-importance many other friends in and around springfield were equally as vigilant and in the language of another long before the contest closed we snuffed approaching victory in the air our laborious efforts met with a suitable reward lincoln was elected by a majority of fifteen eleven in the district a larger vote than clay's two years before which was only nine hundred fourteen in sangamon county his majority was six hundred ninety and exceeded that of any of his predecessors on the whig ticket commencing with stuart in eighteen thirty four and continuing on down to the days of yates in eighteen fifty two before lincoln's departure for washington to enter on his duties as a member of congress the mexican war had begun the volunteers had gone forward and at the head of the regiments from illinois some of the bravest men and the best legal talent in springfield had marched hardin baker bissell and even the dramatic shields had enlisted the issues of the war and the manner of its prosecution were in every man's mouth naturally therefore a congressman elect would be expected to publish his views and define his position early in the day although in common with the whig party opposing the declaration of war lincoln now that hostilities had commenced urges a vigorous prosecution he admonished us all to permit our government to suffer no dishonor and to stand by the flag till peace came and came honorably to us he declared these sentiments in a speech at a public meeting in springfield may twenty ninth eighteen forty seven in the following december he took his seat in congress he was the only whig from illinois his colleagues in the illinois delegation were john a mcclernand o b ficklin william a richardson thomas j turner robert smith and john wentworth in the senate douglas had made his appearance for the first time the little giant is always in sight robert c winthrop of massachusetts was chosen speaker john quincy adams horace mann caleb smith alexander h stevens robert toombs howell cobb and andrew johnson were important members of the house with many of these the newly elected member from illinois was destined to sustain another and far different relation. End of section fifteen. Recording by Vicki Rands.